Welcome, and thank you for joining us for a conversation about the history and future of the Institute for Signifying Scriptures. In this five-part series of conversations, we're speaking with people who have been connected to the African Americans in the Bible Conference and the Institute for Signifying Scriptures, and we've asked them to reflect on that involvement in the intellectual project the Institute reflects. Our first episode actually comes from the Hispanic Theological Initiative's Open Plaza podcast, and it presents a conversation between Jacqueline Hidalgo and Vincent Wimbush on the intellectual impulses that drove Dr. Wimbush to engage first in the African Americans in the Bible Project, and then later in founding the Institute for Signifying Scriptures. Future episodes will bring in different voices who are involved with both projects over the years. For more information and for other episodes in the series, please visit our website, signifyingscriptures.org. Welcome to Open Plaza, created by the Hispanic Theological Initiative. For more information about today's episode, visit htiopenplaza.org. Hello and greetings. I'm Jacqueline Hidalgo. I'm a professor of theology and religious studies at the University of San Diego, and I'm excited to get a chance to speak today with Dr. Vincent Wimbush, who is the founding director of the Institute for Signifying Scriptures, which Congratulations is celebrating its 20th anniversary this year, and we'll hold a 20th anniversary meeting in April 2024, one that also commemorates 25 years since the African Americans in the Bible Conference. And the meeting will be both hybrid in Atlanta for those who want to join you in uh, person or online to dream the future of the Institute. Um, but I thought that today we would have an opportunity to talk about, um, about your work and the sort of work the ISS, the Institute for Signifying Scriptures, facilitates uh, and, and give us an opportunity to think about why this way of thinking about scriptures can be helpful for Latina, Latino, Latine contexts and students of what goes on in these contexts. Um, but I thought that it could help if we just sort of start by unpacking the, the terms in the Institute's title. Uh, and we can start with, uh, for me, what I think is a, a simple question, um, which you know, uh, you'll know you demonstrate is not so simple. Uh, and that's why scriptures? Well, uh, first, thank you for um, <clears throat> this opportunity and um... Uh, this platform to um, think more about um, what I do or what I have been about for uh, the last um, more than a couple of decades, frankly, in terms of uh, programming, research, uh, and and writing. Um, yeah, the uh, you know why scriptures. Um, I actually want to make uh, the point uh, that um, the project uh, aims uh, both to make um, scriptures as concept front and center uh, in an effort to address sort of basic problems having to do with um, social formation and power, uh, and at the same time to decenter it by uh, exploding it to show in the end um, that there's no there there uh, on the level that most people uh, tend to think about these matters as a kind of 
situation in which something um, that is uh, rendered uh, ordinary as an extraordinary phenomenon uh, needs to be uh, reconsidered. So um, it's precisely because uh, we take it for granted that there's a, a something there uh, and because uh, it is also all too present and all too powerful in society and culture. For me, it is shorthand. Other people will have very different approaches uh, to the matter, but it's a shorthand uh, for a complex of um, dynamics and issues, uh, discourse, language, uh, power, uh, formation, uh, also uh, deformation, and you know all of the opposites that um, uh, are pertinent here. Um, so it ought not to be avoided, um, and it needs to be uh, exploded uh, into, depending upon where one sits, into or beyond um, several different domains. So I've never thought it belonged strictly to the domain of religion that modernists carve out as something kind of separate. That's, you know, that's relatively recent. Uh, most human beings um, were we able to um, enter into discourse with them would think uh, the whole concept of religion rather odd. And um, also uh, the very concept of, um, of scripture or the scriptural. These are um, modern uh, issues, dynamics, and phenomena with uh, rather devastating um, effects and consequences. So it needs to be thought about, needs to be problematized. So the problem is that it has been, um, what it represents has been cast aside as something that ought not to be probed uh, because one could put it safely within the domain of religion and sort of put a cap on it and uh, walk away from it. So it's very much worth uh, a critical studies approach um, and worth the effort to unpack and explode uh, as it were. Uh, so the persistent question is, um, you know, what are scriptures? What are we talking about? What is that covering up? Um, for what is it uh, shorthand uh, as um, as we enter into uh, discourse and power relations? So the signifying that's part of it um, signals the challenge actually to understand the whatness of it what are we dealing with? What meanings are being um, masked or, um, or, or capped, as it were? So in, in the most simple terms, um, we aim to gain safe space to ask uh, these most basic questions 
uh, about dynamics and issues that are taken for granted and covered up. Um, the challenge is to go back to these um, with as uh, honest and as creative and transgressive approach as, um, as is possible. I hope that's enough to get us started at any rate. <laughs> I think that's a great place to start, but there's actually a lot there I want to go back sure. and follow up on and, and sort of, of ask for, um, you know, maybe a, a couple of concrete examples to think with as well. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that you you said in, in sort of describing, you know, the Institute, as you imagine it, is trying to kind of create space for people to ask questions and to think about a phenomenon that too many people have taken for granted and have acted like there are questions that cannot be asked <laughs> about mm -hmm. this phenomenon. And yeah. I'm wondering if you might talk a little bit more about what, what, or even give an example, like what is a way that people have taken for granted what they just presume scriptures are? <laughs> like what is a way that they have just said, oh, we know what this is. We don't need to ask any further questions about this thing. Uh, what might be a great example to think with there? Well, you know, again, so let's begin with, um, I'm not wanting to be presumptuous about the community that would constitute HDI, but so it may be an exception, but most human beings in the modern West, again, put this onto and into religious discourse and religious communities. Uh, some people's attitudes might be something along the lines of, well, you know, this is kind of uh, silly and absurd, uh, this uh, assumption um, that God or a God uh, has uh, written or facilitated uh, the writing of texts, uh, documents that we hold, concrete objects um, that need to be set aside and made exceptional. Well, that whole notion, of course, with a critical, uh, uh, a regular human being's critical uh, hair standing on edge, it's like, well, that, that's that's rather absurd. I mean, the, the notion itself uh, is absurd, like so much that has to do with this set-aside phenomenon that we call religion. So we package the whole scriptural thing, which legitimizes it in the modern world um, as this set-aside dynamic or phenomenon. So on its face, it's absurd. Now, many people will tighten up around that. That gets me going. I wanna know, why do human beings act that way? That, that is kind of crazy, right? I, I, so it's worth unpacking. Um, why do we make these assumptions? And so much of history, uh, the legitimizing of acts, rules, uh, psychologies, pathologies, uh, turn around um, this sort of packaging. Um, there's a lot, it seems to me, that's involved in all of that, that, um, that bears, uh, you know, cracking open. Where we're located uh, in this particular part of the modern West, I would include all of the modern world, but especially uh, in the United States, uh, for me, it's a no brainer that to understand uh, the United States on a level 
um, that seems to me be, just begins to be uh, interesting and provocative. Um, one could do a whole history of it based on um, uh, the concept of what I call uh, scripturalization. Uh, I actually prefer the verbal uh, rendering of the term to verbalize this so as to focus on the dynamics. Um, we are uh, still uh, a very much a scriptural formation. I would say I wouldn't take seriously uh, a, a scholar of U.S. history uh, who hasn't sort of paid attention to this phenomenon. Now, by this, I don't mean uh, just that uh, we're the, the wildest part of the Wild West with religion, with scriptures. I mean that the whole experiment that's the United States is scripturally based. So you've got just there so many possibilities for going forward to understand who we are, how we have been shaped, how we've been formed. Now, uh, my view of the widest possible uh, set of dynamics, that is to say, in the mass, in the, the modern West and reaching back to perhaps the uh, latter part of the Renaissance period, you would you would say, this is all for the United States, a kind of creative, uh, maybe extreme, but that depends on who you're uh, discoursing with, a uh, set of mimetics uh, that uh, have defined uh, the West itself. So the U.S. has a kind of extreme example of scripturalizing or of scripturalization, uh, maybe uh, another useful way of thinking um, about this. So you can see that I, I want to use to explode the very common understanding of scripture where you go from thinking of it uh, as uh, a document, uh, of course, loaded with power. You don't want to think about that, right? Um, to a kind of uh, explosion so that one see how uh, the extent to which you pay attention to the uh, psychologics of the matter, uh, including the pathologies, uh, uh, politics, um, power dynamics, uh, to be sure, uh, to that extent, you see its workings, right, in almost every sector of society. I would put the challenge on an interlocutor to show me where it's not at work uh, in um, the uh, worlds in which uh, we, we live. So it's a very useful concept as a kind of uh, wedge issue for uh, conceptualization and analysis of the world in which we live. And it's the religious part um, that is not the exception, but is a kind of a useful um, window to um, uh, the, the, the larger world. It's, it's a kind of subset, if you will. One has to be careful about that because I'm not sure where the lines are, you know, where, where you, you cut yourself off from all of this, especially 
in the situation that's the United States. But it's, um, you know, let, let me round it, this out by saying, I see the concept as useful because it's so provocative. The uh, very notion of scripture can be made, should be made uh, so capacious uh, that it could be uh, the springboard for a different kind of uh, critical analysis um, that helps us to understand, uh, in my view, the bottom line. That is to say, uh, why we are the way we are, how things have been, um, how and why things have been ordered and uh, why things uh, remain the way uh, they are. Now, lots of people, scholars, analysts come at this from so many different perspectives. What I've seen missing uh, is a kind of sensitivity to the, the this kind of workings of power, um, perhaps because uh, there's some um, uh, fear, uh, some anxiety about what it means uh, to, to put this very concept, this very notion on the table for analysis. And uh, I, I, I think this must be done. <clears throat> No, thank thank you for that. Again, so much there that I'm <clears> gonna <throat> I want to return to this workings of power question um, mm -hmm. because I think that like that's actually part of what the troublesome religion shorthand is misdirecting yeah. our attention from. Um, but I I want to actually go go back a little bit um, and just underscore <clears throat> something that I think you said uh, to give you a, another opportunity to to talk a little bit about you know perhaps like you said, how we got to where we are. Um, and that's that whether, you know, we're talking about the Institute's name signifying scriptures or your kind of preferred way of really thinking about scriptures as scripturalization, um, as a way of underscoring that we as humans are actively scripturalizing. This is not a static fixed set document in the sort of fantasy that, that people have. This right. is something that we actively maintain as part of our, our practices. And that's the sort of focus on these kinds of verbal forms of signifying and of scripturalizing and of scripturalization as a way of redirecting our attention to the sort of active work that continues to be done. And you also said something else that I think is important and can give us an opportunity to get at this question of how does scriptures help us understand how we got here by looking at the United States in particular? And you said, we have to understand the United States as a scriptural formation and not simply neatly in the fields that we automatically presume to be religious, right? So, you know, and I'll just name here concretely, right? People are going to think specifically of what goes on in churches, synagogues, mosques. Right. If they're creative, they might think of what goes on in Lukumi rituals, or, you know, if they're a little bit more uh, open-minded about where scriptures are taking place. But you want to point to something else that is actually bigger than and cannot be confined uh, simply to those those spaces. So how do we understand yeah, yeah, the yeah, United States yeah, as a scriptural yeah. formation? Well, you know, you know, one can begin with <clears throat> where uh, every um, schoolgirl and schoolboy is sort of forced to um, to engage 
uh, with U.S. history. I, I think this is still the case, but one has to always accept Florida now. Um, you know, the, the founding documents. Uh, so um, Constitution, Declaration of Independence, uh, and so forth. Uh, so the and so forth is important because uh, those texts remain alive uh, with uh, amendments, other laws, and, and it goes on. That, that's all from my point of view, uh, scriptural phenomena, scriptural dynamics. Uh, politics is scriptural politics, right? Um, clearly in the United States, uh, but in also in most of uh, uh, a great deal of uh, of, the, of, of, uh, of the modern world. I mean, I'm even willing, this is sort of a footnote aside, to play with um, autocratic uh, regimes, uh, old monarchies, even they depend to a great degree on what I would see as what I understand to be kind of scriptural psychologies. Uh, the inauguration of, um, you know, uh, Philip as king, uh, all of that depended upon uh, a great deal of scriptural wizardry in order to uh, make it authentic. But now back to the United States. So, uh, you know, this is not subtle. I mean, it's the, the we, we, we are constituted um, by these texts, you know, in literal terms, insofar as we agree that there was power uh, in uh, the texts that uh, we put in the center, that we agree um, that these are to function for us uh, in certain ways or on certain lines. Um, that is the very same set of dynamics or psychologics, if you will, that obtain in religious communities. You, the extent to which you stand back from it, there's a kind of absurdity built into it. Uh, there's nothing inherent in the words themselves, no matter what Jefferson thought, right? Um, it, it, the, the power is based on the, the kind of psychological, social psychological uh, workings and dynamics. So um, one could begin there. Now, what, it, what is important uh, also about this is that uh, the official uh, authentication, uh, to put it that way, of these texts in making and sustaining a nation, um, whatever you want to call that, I call that, uh, you know, again, um, scripturalizing dynamic, scriptural lectics in a kind of dynamic and evolutionary uh, terms transition from this or, or that uh, regime of power um, inherent in interpretation of the text for um, the most part. Uh, that's what we see in the, the workings of religion. I've also thought that the, um, 
the sifting of out of differences, uh, these are really different schools of interpretation uh, within the polity that's the United States also looks very much like what we have gotten used to and have taken for granted in the so-called separate reign of uh, religion. So different uh, religions per se and different uh, denominational offshoots, that's what we have in the polity that's uh, the United States. Now, for the most part, these um, differences in interpretation of schools of interpretation can be thought of in terms of um, the power of um, kind of official or semi-official religions. So that leads me to think that it's all the more important to pay attention to the people who fall through the cracks. And um, that's why uh, I have taken to making use of, in my case, uh, the uh, African-American uh, story, the story of uh, Black presence in the West in general and the United States in particular uh, as a kind of analytical wedge uh, for opening up uh, the cover-up or the wizardry that's found in these official schools of thought so that Black folk would represent, and there are others uh, to be sure that can be used along these lines, uh, but I think everybody will pay, pay attention to uh, the story of Black presence here, um, uh, not for any reason that has to do with uh, uh, exceptionalism or inherent power and and so forth. Um, I'm I'm really uncomfortable with that kind of game, uh, but because of the opportunity, uh, maybe even the I would say the provocative example it represents uh, for kind of blowing all of that up or showing what is at issue or what is at stake. Since these people as a kind of presence uh, fall through the cracks, fall through the cracks of the major lines of differentiation, which are like, you know, world religions or schools of thought and the like. And um, um, that's uh, why the African-Americans in the Bible project um, uh, was um, um, put together in the first place. And that's what I think still it's, uh, is um, its power. Obviously people will read for whatever reason they want to read and interpret uh, as they will. Uh, but I would wanna maintain that um, it's a sort of powerful uh, heuristic kind of theoretical analytical wedge for understanding what has taken place. That is to say, how the United States in particular uh, was uh, shaped in scriptural terms and therefore uh, canonized, continue using um, the language of uh, religion as a point of comparison. Um, and um, these folk um, almost function as an example to pull the curtain apart 
so as to show how things were um, were put together. I could go on and on about that, but um, I'll stop here. There may be you know clarifying issues or questions that uh, that you would want to raise, but I hope that addresses your um, the, the question on the table. Actually, that that was the direction I was hoping you would go, because, as I said, I wanted to return to this this issue of, you know, that for you, the, the sort of, you know, the studying of scriptures is really an opportunity to kind of ask pointed questions about the workings of power between and among humans, right? right? You know, I mean, that's the sort of you know, and 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 talk of God uh, being behind scripture is often obscures exactly that issue and that matter. And, you know, I I know that your work, you know, starting as it did with the African Americans and the Bible project conference, the very impressive, massive volume that came out of that. And then um, the many years of of pointed research and and a number of books you've written since then including one with my favorite all-time academic title, uh, which I can get into later, but um, it is one of my favorite titles for an academic book ever. Uh, okay, just so uh, listeners know, it's White Men's Magic, Scriptural Nation of Slavery. Yes, yes, yes. So, pretty, pretty great title. Um, part of what I, I was hoping you would bring up this, the, the work you've done on African-Americans, um, both because uh, I think as you're pointing to, it, it isn't an exceptional case. It's, it's a case that helps us to understand the phenomenon. And for Latino, Latina, Latine listeners, right? Um, this is part of the hemispheric history. There are particularities mm -hmm. to the United States, but it is a hemispheric history. Um, there is a, uh, a way in which the structures, and you've you've always been very good at uh, in your work at directing people to the relationship between scriptures and the structures of colonialism as a broader apparatus, as a global apparatus that includes uh, the enslavement of Africans, their kidnapping and being brought to this hemisphere, but also the sort of ongoing broader work of colonialism that was spreading around the globe through other right. means. Right. Right. And I think that this, this gives a really concrete community to think with that is relevant, which is how can we understand the work that scriptures was doing in the formation of a people we think of as African-American and the many different responses that African-American communities had to that scripturalizing process and and the way that they engaged in their own scripturalizing mm -hmm, processes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Wow. Um, yeah, of course, very good questions and issues and problems. I won't pretend to be able here or um, in general to uh, address all of them, certainly not with any kind of uh, sense of finality. Um, we should think of, um, we can continue to play with um, what other concepts or words, even phrases might help us to um, better to understand the phenomenon to which the scriptural, scripturalizing uh, points. Um, 
most basic is, of course, how we use language, language turned into real and complex uh, discourse of so many types, including in the colonial era, <clears throat> you know, not only the arts, um, uh, one thinks of um, the novel or novella form uh, in particular, uh, my all-time favorite example for getting at this would be, of course, uh, someone like uh, Conrad, Joseph Conrad, and one could go on about this. But in the most basic terms, um, with uh, writing and printing and the like, the colonial project uh, succeeded on the basis um, not of having a, uh, a violent police officer in every space and at every turn, uh, but it turned around and became successful on the basis of the functioning of the scriptural. Now, it, it's hard for me to understand how that could be contested. There just never are enough police, but, uh, to, you know, to do all of that work. Um, but of course, you depend heavily on um, the kind of magic or wizardry, if you will, a kind of complex contorted psychologics um, that do that work for us. From the simple um, uh, functioning of uh, classification, kind of writing people up. Oh, look at that person. He looks like this. Well, you know, let's write him up this way. I mean, that's a scriptural, that's part of the scriptural project. Now, because now that becomes far more sophisticated than look over there, how she looks, right? Look at those buttocks on that person. Well, what do we call that? Where are these people from, right? And um, what do we do with this category or class of people? Um, one can't uh, advance the colonial project in any climate. It's not about which is Protestant or Catholic. I mean, that's, an, that's, that's a distraction, right? What, what's basic is writing up people uh, with the purpose of kind of canonizing the category or class. And everything kind of turns around that working in a way that sustains the order and eventually makes it natural. That's what, that's what we're, we're, we're talking about. And nothing like the written in terms of leading us to uh, naturalization. So many, many centuries of proving uh, how successful um, that um, would, would be. And I think we just understand history in terms of waves of um, intensification and experiments and how best to pull this off, how to be more and more efficient about all of this. Now, of course, um, the, the written and discourse in general um, is slippery. One has to worry about uh, control uh, especially there, even there at every point and every turn. Um, so the people who have been written up, in spite of what was said about them, 
can speak back, uh, can read an expansive understanding of that term and interpret and manipulate these symbols and the like. So if not the policeman with the gun, and if it turns around words, you put them out there, but you cannot guarantee how they will be taken up and manipulated. So um, uh, that provokes, um, that, that challenges us toward a history of reading back or speaking back, depending upon where we are, what time, and what peoples. And so all over the world created by the colonial, you have that uh, kind of phenomenon, and that bears unpacking. Um, so that you understand how peoples, certain peoples, subalterns, uh, people on the margin, people who are understood as uh, the silhouettes, you know, of the, um, the the modern world, establishing its boundaries. I think that's especially how Black folk function uh, in such a world. Um, how they responded is uh, another kind of uh, fraught history, and it's worth thinking about that strictly in scriptural terms. And what I see in general, I'm still working on unpacking this, is of course both the phenomenon of uh, imitation, right, of, uh, of uh, uh, kind of mimetics of uh, of uh, of the scriptural. Um, what else, after all, is is left as opportunity to um, uh, to react? Uh, but also, um, uh, although rare, opportunities to to take that to a point where it's uh, undermined. Um, the the first type of response uh, one could usefully call a kind of um, signifying as mimetics, um, following Gates and Charles Long and other uh, theorists, uh, I'm given to thinking about the second level or kind of critical response as a kind of signifying on, which means turning it on it on its head. We're, uh, registering a kind of self-reflexivity about what has been done and about what you're doing, right? Um, which um, represents a kind of uh, critical uh, turn that's um, uh, worth uh, advancing. Uh, this means there's still a lot of work to be done because I think that so much of, of the work um, and scholarship across fields is um, attuned to uh, the work of uh, kind of simple imitation, which one is either embarrassed by or one elevates to a point where it's also uncritical. And I refuse to play those games. So that leaves me somewhat lonely in the theoretical uh, world. Uh, I think one can do that, uh, that kind of work uh, with all people's pretty much invented uh, by the scriptural world that is the colonial world. So there is, for me, according to my thinking about uh, matters and remains for someone to disabuse me of this notion, there is no getting out of or away from this phenomenon. One has to go through it 
And that means there, there remains the challenge of thinking hypercritically about the scriptural. Uh, all of us have been scripturalized. All of us find ourselves within the boundaries, the regimes of the scriptural, including white dominance, whether they know it or not. And it's their magic, which has enslaved them in a way um, that is uh, a, a bit different uh, from uh, historically subaltern peoples, uh, but there is overlap. And that warrants, uh, uh, it seems to me, everybody's uh, serious attention to the phenomenon itself. What has been created is somewhat monstrous, uh, you know, Levi Strauss's uh, thing about uh, discourse doing uh, violence. That's always the case. Uh, I don't see exceptions uh, anywhere in the history uh, that I've read or tried to um, uh, excavate. Uh, so it's a warrant for doing more and more of this kind of work. That's also, uh, I'd say in closing, uh, Jackie, for this argument, um, something of a warrant for, reason for um, uh, the uh, an ISS as a kind of independent force. Uh, because I, I would want uh, those who listen in to understand that um, what is at stake here is finding a safe space for and an opportunity uh, to raise the kinds of questions and issues that are not normally uh, put the emphasis there, uh, encouraged uh, in the academies whose discourses were of course defined uh, by uh, the colonial project and uh, made legitimate uh, by um, uh, that project. So we cannot expect these discourses uh, to help us get out of them. It's, it almost means that uh, we need to be experimenting with sort of different lines of thinking, different types of research um, that will help us ask the most basic uh, question. And that most basic question uh, it's raising is not likely to be sustained um, within settings or contexts by definition meant to be a kind of uh, um, project of apology uh, for um, um, uh, scripturalization from which we all suffer in my view. <clears throat> yeah, so so much to to talk about there and and to take from that. Um, you know, I, I think you're you're pointing to uh, a problem about, and I, I don't want to limit this to 
the academy or to any particular formation sure. in the academy. Yes, yes. Um, <clears throat> but but a problem about um, how we think knowledge can and should be made in any sort of broader way. Um, but I, I actually want to, because I think it's helpful, it's always helpful for me to think concretely, I actually want to speak concretely about the, the fact that, right, we're both um, technically trained as uh, New Testament scholars, yeah. Right? Yeah. right? So that is technically our, uh, our formation, which, um, and, and what I think concretely you're pointing to, that sort of valorization or interest in imitation in its sort of simplest form means that to the extent that, um, say, uh, the field of biblical studies thinks of itself as expanding the discourse, it often does so by, uh, and I'll just give my own example, I imagine you would have your own, by inviting people in on taken for granted terms. So, and then asking me, say, inviting me, can you give a Latina interpretation of this facet of Paul's yeah. letter to the Romans, right? Yeah. Um, you know, this this both, you know, inscribes me as a certain kind of ethnic formation vis-a-vis -vis the, the topic at hand. And it also takes for granted that what I should be doing is simply participating in the same kind of project of reading the Bible in specific kinds of ways. Exactly. You exactly. you specifically and pointedly, uh, you know, with the conference that you put on 25 years ago in a seminary, mind you, at Union Theological Seminary in New York, you refused exactly that move, <laughs> right? And I was wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about why you refuse that and then ultimately yeah went went rogue from both uh seminary context and and the academy in a, a larger way yeah yeah well yeah uh you know some some very good points that um why we would need far more time to unpack all of this um yeah the graduate school uh formation was then uh it was an arts and sciences program that was actually um, put together by Wilfred Cantwell Smith. Uh, he was ahead of it. So um, it was thought of as a comparative religion, broad enough comparative religion into which um, you can slide these different subfields, including some of the old, um, especially Protestant inflected uh, subfields that would include um, New Testament. By the way, all of my teachers, uh, save one, uh, were European males. That will help you to situate the situation for me, what, what I confronted. Um, you know, two German, Tory, English, um Scandinavian and um white male Catholic Jesuit, uh, which means he was all of the others, right? I mean, all, all of those. So that that helps you to situate that. That discourse um continued up to my time. It's it's since, since uh, exploded, uh to be modeled by uh european males mostly cleric not all were but clearly leaning in that uh, direction 
Um, that that itself says a lot. So they were the uh, the high priests of the field, determining who would get in, uh, you know, who's at the top, and, and so forth. And I, it's it's astounding when you think about it. Uh, I won't linger with this, but um, just occurred to me uh, who would. Maybe there are a couple of other fields like this. I, I don't think it's exceptional, but you would take the representatives of cultures having come out of uh, the most destructive world war. Uh, these were the sort of survivors of that. Uh, some were in the war, some you know, played the clerical card. Um, during that time, and actually put them in positions of power uh, to define um, a discourse in the U.S. settings from the late 50s into the 60s, the 70s. So I entered the situation in the late 70s, and that was part of the end of it. It just, I, I just think it bears thinking about um how we how a field uh, and its discourse is shaped uh and by whom so I, I think I'll just leave that for now but it's it's worth thinking about and thinking about to the point of being written about uh in a very serious way so not only from Europe but from that part of Europe that had been most destructive in a most destructive war. And those are the people sort of defining what this part of an academic subfield would be in the decades to come. So it's, it's worth thinking about that. Um, I think I wore the field uh, warily from the beginning. Uh, and I think this was a part of it, that is the identification of people sort of defining the field. And of course, finally, the fact that um, no voice or image that came any, anywhere close to who I was, uh, was deemed legitimate. Now, uh, you know, this is a generational story. I think when you all came along, it was a very different kind of situation or somewhat different situation. Um, but you actually could not, you did not even broach the subject of uh, examples for arguing around a text or a historical situation um, that was outside of the uh, trajectory uh, from, if we go backwards, uh, from the United States playing Europe, a translation of Europe, uh, all the way to antiquity. Um, and it was assumed that those were all white people too. That was just pre-Europe and Europe kind of in the making, getting itself going. Uh, the field turned around those uh, sorts of assumptions. Um, very long and complicated story, uh, shortened for our purposes. 
Um, I fought in my own way uh, to um, destabilize, I think is the word, to upbraid or uh, interject uh, myself, uh, my larger kind of collective self uh, into the discourse. And I think that's what eventually led to African-Americans and the Bible as the project. Um, there were some people that were upset. I mean, Black people that were upset that it was not configured as a, I mean, some Black scholars, <laughs> I mean, some of whom are still around, who um, saw that it wasn't configured or conceptual, conceptualized around the nonsensical notion that you would sort of find, um, you know, forget African-Americans, that is totally nonsensical, but Black people in the Bible. So the title with the copula was not a matter of kind of rummaging through the Bible to find, you know, where, where the Black figures are. That's still the way in simple terms, some people work. And of course, I think that's silly. Uh, you just get nowhere with that. And I don't want to be associated with that sort of project. Um, it was, from my knowledge, the first uh, efforts project to explore from a wide range of fields and disciplines uh, what the two categories in complex uh, conjuncture uh, would represent. So um, history as in American, European and beyond, uh, social scientific, uh, arts critical and performative and so on, uh, what that might mean. And so there was not the focus on the exegetical. That was the end of a long effort on my part uh, actually to destabilize, I think I want to stay with that word, uh, my own participation in the field. I don't think I've stopped anybody from doing what they want to do uh, in the field, um, but it certainly was a disruption. I think in some places it actually functioned as a disruption, um, but certainly for me, and um, so I was never to be associated with or to participate in the work of the field uh, in the same way. Uh, most simply put, the idea was to model an approach or a way of thinking whereby one would use these people who fall between the cracks, that they are not, that they have not been textualized in the this narrow or formal sense of the word, what it means to use uh, their practices and sensibilities in thinking about uh, the, the scriptural. And although the, the histories may be somewhat different, uh, you can use any people's falling through the cracks, you know, not on the basis of uh, um, the dominant standing categories of difference, right? The various Protestants and Catholic uh, formations um, that um, could, of course, be easily translated into the uh, the social and political. Here, 
in the context of the academy and various professional uh, discourses. Um, so that that's a little bit about uh, my own history. It's the kind of a history of my psyche and my thinking. And um, the years since represent, in my view, an effort to uh, sharpen that way of thinking, uh, that kind of orientation, uh, and uh, to model as best I can, um, the approach I think uh, represents um, com compelling uh, disruption, uh, if you will, of that discourse. If I might suggest <clears throat> something a little more uh, pointed, and you can yeah. uh, correct me if I'm uh, if I'm over uh, signifying myself. I think that part of what you're you're pointing to, I mean, and there there's so much there on the sort of history of the the for the precise formation of the fields uh, within biblical studies itself. But I think one can take this to the the problem of the broader thing we call the humanities in in the academy. Um, that there's an irony in that so many of the approaches within the humanities are actually allergic to paying pointed attention to what humans do. And they sort of obscure um, the question of, of what we even mean by the human and how humans do things um, by, by focusing on other issues or problems or trajectories. And I think that part of your taking, you know, going from African-Americans in the Bible, which problematizes that sort of narrower formation of biblical studies and your place within it uh, destabilizes it, as you say, um, but also uh, then moving to sort of building uh, an institute that initially was in a university and now exists outside of it, um, precisely because that's an opportunity for people who claim to study the humanities <laughs> to pay attention precisely to this problem of, mm -hmm. um, of, of what humans are, are doing in, in this, in this context. Um, with that um, said, you know, and that's the sort of like bigger example, I'm, you know, what I'd say is that the ISS then facilitates a lot of opportunities for people to then ask questions that are both big, but also can be much narrower to think about in some ways, like in the sense that people can look at, uh, they can start with things that that feel more particular, um, but the, the sort of space of the ISS allows them to think about them in conversation in, in, in broader and um, uh, distinctive terms. And, you know, here I'm thinking about what I, you know, my, my own work and how I think you pushed me in terms of where my, my first book wound up, where it is not simply looking at the sort of ways, uh, Mexican Americans have dealt with the Bible <laughs> or something biblical, but also the ways that they created, you know, and here I'm talking specifically of my first book where I looked at uh, the work of Chicano Chicana activists in the late 60s, the way they created their own texts and the way that they 
played with and tried to sort of form, reform themselves, reimagine themselves around their own text. Um, one text I talk about uh, for listeners being the the Plan de Aslan and Aslan um, being the the sort of uh, a, a kind of play with the Nahua name for uh, their their homeland and the sort of projects and processes of trying to map that onto the space of what is the United States Southwest, a space that many Mexican-Americans, um, some are indigenous to, some have been there for many generations, but have often been told under US rule that they don't belong. This became a way of responding to both that kind of inscription while also still participating in and playing with those dynamics. And I could go on about that at a longer way, but I thought, it's helpful for listeners to have that sort of like smaller concrete example yeah, yeah. of something that um, precisely the ISS can facilitate questions, not just about the scriptures we think of as scriptures, <laughs> but also the other kinds of projects and processes um, that are scripturalizing and about, about this sort of issue of human formation um, that people don't often think of as scriptures and it's an opportunity to see um, or to sort of think with and to understand what's going on uh, in, in both broader and more relational terms. So I wanted to like, you, you can correct me, but that was like a long, a very long, like concrete example. I think what I want to kind of give you an opportunity to do now is then to sort of talk about what it is that the ISS can do now because it's not tied to an academic institution, mm -hmm. disciplinary mm -hmm. formation, or space per se. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for that. And, and, and your example was, of course, a powerful one, um, given your work. And um, uh, of course, we all hope that you'll continue uh, doing um, just this kind of work to uh, model new ways forward. Um, and of course, the perfect segue to talk uh, for talking about the ongoing agenda, what I hope will be the ongoing agenda of ISS. Again, safe space for raising questions, uh, critical questions, engaging in high level thinking and conversation and research about, um, well, I would uh, think the best handle for it is something like Foucault's order of things, how how things have been ordered, classified, um, naturalized. Um, it, it, re it remains a challenge for all of us outside of a particular discipline or field um, a reigning discipline or field um, gives us the opportunity to um, kind of look again, again, at the most basic question. Um, why are things the way they are? And whether and to what extent uh, using the concept of uh, the scriptural um, is um, is useful. Um, it's beyond uh, 
the realm of religion, that already is a very important step to take. That means the world of discourses um, are ours to take, embrace, to play with. And it may mean we're doing uh, something that amounts to uh, creating a different kind of discourse uh, altogether to get at um, the matter of um, how humans are made in the modern world, especially if we're done with um, the focal point for all of this, you know, the, the man who is, of course, um, the white European formation. Uh, if we're done with that and we can begin elsewhere, uh, it becomes really, really fascinating and, and of course, uh, challenging, um, especially the extent to which you look through, are able to look through the experiences of the people who've had to undergo uh, modernity on different terms because they tell on um, the wizardry, right? Um, through uh, their reading back and through their mimetics, right? Um, both of which can sometimes be poignant and sad, um, uh, but of course, um, that's an opportunity uh, for the critical uh, analyst. So uh, to that extent, we would invite everybody um, earnest and honest um, about um, who and where we are um, to come in on the conversation. We actually uh, aim to continue uh, having our gatherings um, outside of, we're not mad at anybody, any academic setting. It's, it's just safe space. Um, uh, not to be overdetermined by uh, any uh, one discourse. So we still gather in the form of a kind of, uh, as I say, pretty much high level uh, seminar, which means conversation, which means contact, which means real exchange, uh, which presumes you do a lot of serious thinking uh, in order to, um, to enter the fray. And this meeting uh, scheduled for uh, next April, mid-April, 11 through 13 April, 2024, to be more exact, be convened uh, in Atlanta. We hope um, a lot of folk will join us for that meeting, uh, if not in person, um, online, uh, to help us figure out uh, ways forward? What are the best ways forward? What are the best opportunities to grab hold on um, for the sake of continuing this kind of work? And um, so I appreciate this as an opportunity to engage folk with whom you've been in conversation to broaden um, the, um, the company of folk who um, would want to travel with us, um, um, you know, in in our work. Uh, but it is important to think about what it means 
to be self-reflective in thinking about what you bring to the table, um, what has been done to you with your own mind, and uh, a way to address that going forward for the special challenges, social, political, economic, psychic, uh, that we all face. So I, I, it just seems to me um, there are just so many compelling reasons uh, for having something like an ISS in the world. And um, I hope more and more people will, um, will come join us, be a part of uh, this effort. <clears throat> Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wimbush, for your time. And I think for that sort of final call, which is to say that the ISS can be a space for people to really think about the most critical and pressing issues of the, the day um, and, and what's going on from a variety of angles together in a conversational space together. Um, right. So I hope that some of our listeners will, will join us in Atlanta in 2024. Um, they can find more information at signifyingscriptures.org. And uh, it was it's always a pleasure to get to talk to you and, and to learn from you. So thanks Thank you so much, that. Jackie. This was really great. Thank you. Take care. This has been an HTI production. For more information, visit us at htiopenplaza.org. The Hispanic Theological Initiative provides Open Plaza as a public service. The views expressed by the guests are their own. Their appearance on this program or any reference to a specific product or entity they represent does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by HTI.